Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce, and this is going to be fantastic. We have today John DeSimone, the author of The Road to Delano. We're going to talk about migrant workers and growers and pickers and what happens and why we really need them in this world. And this is a fantastic book, and if you haven't read it, we're going to make sure you know where to get it at the end of the show. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you, Fran. Thank you for having me on your show today. So where did you get the inspiration? I, I, me too, because this is an important topic. <laughs> people don't realize yeah. that without these people, we would have to do our gardening, our landscaping, and a whole lot more. And they don't, they don't appreciate it. So where did you get the inspiration for writing this song? For that is the story. Well, I grew up in California. I'm in Southern California, and. I'd always heard of Cesar Chavez. I mean, you can't drive around L.A. and not see his name all over the place. And, um, you know, I was a, a kid during the, the Great Boycott, and we talked about it uh, at the table back in the 60s and 70s. But I didn't really understand what the context of what he accomplished. So um, I was uh, teaching... Uh, as an adjunct, uh, freshman composition, and I had the opportunity to pick books, and I picked uh, a book of essays for students to read, you know, so they can write their essays, and uh, you know that drill. And uh, the the one I picked was The History of Civil Disobedience. And Mm. one of the last essays in the book, the last two essays in the book, started with Socrates and ended with MLK, but the penultimate uh, essay was a series of readings from Jacques Levy's biography of Cesar Chavez. And I just became intrigued because I never knew that he used a form of civil disobedience called nonviolence, which is the very mm. same thing that, that the civil rights movement, John Lewis, uh, MLK, et al., have used uh, down in the South, right around the same time, uh, years before and during. So it was, uh, I had just completed a book, and I was looking for a subject, and I began reading this biography of Cesar Chavez, and I just, I, it blew my mind. I had no idea of how he used nonviolence to break the cycle of, of, um, of, of abuse, and we'll put it, we'll say abuse of labor abuses in the Central Valley that have been going on since what the 1880s, mm-hmm. and uh, no one had successfully, no farm worker had successfully organized um, a union 
And it's not the union per se that, that I want to dwell on. It's I just want to dwell on the fact that uh, Cesar Chavez uh, accomplished something that no one else could accomplish because they used violence. In other words, there were strikes in the 20s, the 30s, I mean, going back to the, to the 1900s, 1910s, 20s, 30s, up until World War II, there were constantly strikes. But the growers always broke the back of the strikes by uh, enticing the strikers to, um, to, to be violent. So they might have started it. The, the growers started it, hired thugs, went into the streets, intimidated the, uh, the strikers. And then when they struck back, when they retaliated, uh, the growers you know, had the National Guard on their side, the sheriffs mm. and the governors. And so the, the workers were always put down, and then they could just ship in new workers. And it was a, it was a vicious cycle. And Cesar Chavez had grown up. Um, he was uh, born in Arizona. He was an American. Him and his siblings. His father and mother were forced off a, 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 a family farm back in the 30s, the whole Dust Bowl um, episode. And so they were the migrant workers throughout the, the, the four, 30s and the 40s. Mm. When it gets to the 50s, Cesar Chavez knows this. He's an eighth-grade dropout. He's trying to find uh, a place in his life, and he runs into a man by the name of Fred Ross, who teach, who confronts him along with a Catholic priest and says, "Look, do you want this to be the life of your people? Do you you have something in you that you can do something about this?" They saw something in him, and Fred Ross taught him how to organize. In other words, how to how to go into a community find people that would um, uh, host a meeting, uh, discuss, you know, the issues, and uh, there's power in people organizing, not just mm. for a labor action, but for voters' rights, for, um, you know, to get a stop sign in your neighborhood, to get a park. Uh, community organizing has been going on, you know, it's the basis of our democracy. So there's nothing Marxist or communist or um, anything like that about it. Um, so he always wanted to do something for the farm workers and he made a choice instead of moving up into the second uh, the middle class which he was doing he said I want to I want to start a farm workers union with he joined with Dolores Huerta who was his uh, uh, colleague and uh, co-founder and the two of them left uh, the CSO as organizers, and Caesar moved to Delano because Delano is surrounded by grape fields. It has the perfect climate to grow table grapes. Table grapes have to get to a certain degree of temperature in order for the sweetness. Mm. And grape growers need workers all year round. So he said, these are the people, they settled in the community, these are the people I'm going to organize and help them um, uh, better their lives. So that was the impetus. A long, maybe a way too long answer, but um, okay. I, I decided this is a great story. Um, it is a great story. I don't story. think people really understand what he accomplished um, and how he accomplished it. 
I don't think people you, appreciate a lot of things that they people accomplish. That's the problem. And without that's these exactly people, it. you would really be lost. I know. That's why. I mean, I I I can read. It's scary. I could read 500 pages in an hour and a half if it's a good book. Oh no, my I'm gosh. serious. It's scary. Yeah, I took speed reading. My my mother did this to me, and I take notes. <laughs> you should see what I did to the inside of your book. I mean, it's it's still there, but I, I have notes and underlines and cross outs and circles, and I write next to it, use this, don't use that. I mean, it's like nobody could read this after me. That's okay. But um, well, if I've a got book is really you good to... like yours, yeah. I just read it. If it takes me yeah. more than two, three days to read a book, you're in trouble. No, seriously. Uh, means friend, yeah, I get bored. So you went to Delano Library. And what did you yes. learn from the documents that that you got? And what tell us about the inspiration for sugar and the article that you read that started sure. this whole thing off. Well, um, the you know I knew that that I had Cesar Chavez, and I knew that that um, at the middle of the strike, so the strike started in '65. What mm-hmm. are they striking about? So the the wages and working conditions were deplorable, and at this time you have to keep you have to keep in mind that there's no illegal immigration problem here. Mm. These are all citizens or green carters. Very few illegals. So these people have settled in the community, the field workers. They're living in hovels and shacks. They're paid less than minimum wage. And uh, there's no water in the fields. There's no protection against pesticides. There's, um, and if they're migrants, the migrant housing, what the farms uh, supplied, were um, some did very good, but most, some of them, um, all, all the facilities they were given was a piece of land on a hillside mm-hmm. to to camp out on. There was no running water. So in other words, they were mm-hmm. working and living in deplorable conditions. But without these workers, none of these fields could be harvested. So um, the, the gro- I, what I wanted to do was I read a lot about Cesar Chavez. I read a lot about what he was uh, for. I understood that he was using nonviolence as a tactic that had never been used in a labor struggle. But I didn't have any of the voices of the growers. I wanted to hear what they had to say. And... That's what I tried to do in the book was to to get both sides of this. And I couldn't find any books they wrote, but mm. I did find in the Delano Library a, a, a an astute and diligent librarian had mm. been cutting out uh, editorials, articles, anything having to do with the strike since the early 60s, way into the 70s. And she filed them by year. And it was in a cardboard box in the back of the Delano Library, which is a very little, tiny library. It's a shoe, mm. it's a shoe box of a library. Nice. And uh, they wouldn't allow me to take them out, obviously. But these are original resources. Uh, to, to give some perspective, the local newspaper mm. kept no archive. So I couldn't go to the newspaper and say, I want to see, you know, uh, your... your um, uh, archived newspapers from the 60s, which you could do with the L.A. Times, the New York Times, mm-hmm. any of these major newspapers, nothing. So in there, I was able to read articles, 
opinion pieces by growers, people who disagreed with them. And you really saw the conversation going back and mm-hmm. forth. Um, you know, how they vilified Cesar Chavez and a journalist would interview him and, and do a good job. And so there was a conversation going on. And I said, this is what I want to get into my book. And uh, then the next step was uh, used bookstores. And I found a series of essays on the Hispanic experience. Mm-hmm. And in there was an essay about a um, a grower, an Anglo grower, his name was not Sugar, who had tried to change things in the 50s and address to his, his uh, colleagues and uh, peers the need to change the way um, field workers are, are treated. And he was run out of the valley. So he was threatened, his tires were slashed, his crops were destroyed, he had threatening mm-hmm. phone calls. And he said, you know, this isn't good for my family. He sold his farm, went to Sacramento, and settled down and became a businessman. So that was my inspiration for Sugar. There were good people. There weren't all, um, yeah. you know, uh, bad people. There were people that recognized, hey, we have to do something here. But it wasn't enough to, to create change throughout the whole valley. So that was know, my... It's- so those are my, my sources. Obviously, there's a lot written about Cesar Chavez by people. Um, but mm-hmm. I wanted to get behind the story. And um, I found, I have always found used bookstores to be extremely helpful. Did they, they didn't let you make copies of any of the articles, did they? I don't even think their copier worked. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> This, I, you know, because I, I, so I know, I know what you're saying. I know, I know what you're saying. It's such a tiny library. It's almost an afterthought. I had to drive up and down the street. I had the address, but I was just keep, you know, where is this? And, um, you know, Delano is a is a small town. It's a it's yeah, a small farming community. Prob- probably around Caesar Chavez's time, maybe it was eight or nine thousand people. And today it's, you know, in the 20,000s. But it's just surrounded by grape fields. It's, uh, it's immense mm. grape fields around there. Well, you described them so well. I felt like I was there. But I love grapes, being very honest. I can't eat very many other things, but grapes are delicious. So that Yeah, we all love our, our grapes. It's Especially a unique environment in the San Joaquin Valley. Yeah. It's one of the richest yeah. valleys, uh, agricultural valleys in the world. That's um, great. So tell us about the, the two main characters that I that I love, Jack and Adrian. How did they become such good friends? This is, by the well, way, the ending. You need a box of tissues, people. Seriously. Jack is um, is the son of a grower. I'm yes, the son of a grower. Mm-hmm. So you know he comes from one side of town, and Adrian is the son of a field worker, and he comes from another side of town. And mm-hmm. those are actual sides of towns. Every town has sides, right? Every town has neighborhoods. And, and in Delano, they're really pronounced. And you can tell where the, the field workers live. You can tell where the growers and the merchants live. And Adrian and, and um, Jack are friends from high school. They've grown up together. Mm-hmm. They've played sports together. And this is very typical in our culture, you know, that um, race is often broken down the barriers of race and 
and status and are often broken down, you know, in sports. And this is true here in Delano. Um, they're both baseball stars. They're both seniors in high school. They're both faced with um, the prospect of, of winning scholarships and moving away from all this turmoil. So those are they both have the same dream, but they come from different worlds. And so the demands on them are different. And I wanted to create a moral dilemma for both of them. So the story takes place in the, in the months leading up to and right after the 25-day fa- uh, fast for nonviolence mm. that Cesar Chavez undertook. The fast for nonviolence was the pivotal movement in that first strike. Because he had been, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta had been preaching nonviolent, you know, we're not going to mm-hmm. strike back, we're going to be um, calm. Um, and the growers were up to their usual tactics, hiring thugs, um, uh, creating chaos, intimidating uh, strikers, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a lot of frustration in the young men, and there was rumors going around that the young strikers, the young pickers, were going to get some guns and go and um, um, and take you know take revenge on the way they've been treated. So. Uh, Chavez knows that at that point he can lose everything if the people don't listen and follow the program. So he goes on a fast for nonviolence. So I just want to bring this point to your listeners. There's a difference between a fast and a hunger strike. He did not go on a hunger strike. Mm. So a hunger strike is when an individual is protesting his treatment and wants one, uh, you know, in jail, uh, ex-convicts will go on hunger strikes to get the jailers to to treat them differently. Well, Caesar Chavez mm-hmm. knew if he went on a hunger strike, the growers would say, "Fine, just keep, don't eat." You know, they we're glad care, to yeah. see you go. Yeah, they don't, they don't care. care. But it's a fast for nonviolence has a has a uh, a religious component to it. It's a it's a penitential uh, method of looking at yourself, taking the stock of yourself, and saying, what's important to me? And that message got through to his followers. And um, the strike, the the field workers maintained their nonviolence. And eventually, and two years later, accomplished something had never been accomplished before. All the major growers in the valley signed agreements and developed um, now they had uh, working conditions. They had a say in in, um, in their work environment. Uh, some minimal protection from pesticide overspraying. Um, water mm. in the fields, bathrooms. So the the common things, Fran. If you you went to you were a teacher. If you went to school mm. and you were in their classroom and you had to go to the bathroom, but the bathroom oh, was it. you know uh, you know. Uh, way across campus or out in a gas station across the street, and your mm-hmm. boss said, okay, you're off the clock while you're going over there. You wouldn't work there. No, as a matter of fact, it's funny that you should say that. I was in junior high school, and you just didn't go to the bathroom. You just you just didn't. I mean, it's weird. You, you were lucky you forgot to go during lunch because the bathrooms were wherever they were. It, it was different, yeah. 
Well, as, the as an educator, were, were as an educator, was it just a? It um, was just you know what I could have been if I was on the third floor. The bathroom was on the fourth floor. They didn't have them on every floor back then. They did. It wasn't oh, that far okay. back. The school was really old. It was older than most people. I mean, the school must have been built in eighteen something. So it was. It was different. It was different back then. And so just, I grew up just, in a just the fact that you had to. Just the fact you had to go down one flight of stairs, you found inconvenient. Think about if you had to yeah. 10, 15, 20 minutes to get to a bathroom. Tell me about it. So, yeah, I, I so, know what you're saying. And in college, they don't let you go out. You have to pray to God that you I mean, I have uh, four master's degrees, and the, the third one that I got, I was like, you didn't even ask Sister R to come out of the class. It goes, forget it. You weren't going anywhere. So I know it's like it's like horrible, yeah. But as an educator, yeah. you're not allowed in an elementary school. You cannot deny children the right to go to the bathroom. The only thing is that because the school was so tough, I took everybody together. I didn't let any kids go by themselves. And if two girls or two boys wanted to go, I sent three to three and three and stood by the door because you get you know you get nervous right away. And the school was safe to a point, but not really. Well, but then I was and brave. and so. Cesar Chavez's use of nonviolence, yeah. and that's what I tried to portray in the book. You did. I tried to, I tried to portray that these young, these young, um, they're young men on the on the cusp of adulthood, but I have mm-hmm. them dealing with adult issues, with moral dilemmas, and that's what I'm, that's what I wanted to do with this story, and because I believe Cesar Chavez's call to nonviolence uh, is a moral call. Well, you did this because you taught you taught young people that things can be handled without using their hands, which does help. Because if you listen to the news today, there's so much violence and so many people acting out, and all the all the looters. They loot. I grew up near Fordham Road in the Bronx, and when I saw what they did, the looters did to my, to where I grew up, and the stores, I was in tears. I could not believe what they did, and justifying themselves and stealing and stuff. There's a there's a there are better ways. So. We mean, well, Jack, and dis- you see what I mean? Di- Seriously. Yeah, destruction. Um, if you look at the the fifties and the sixties with the civil rights movement in the South, yeah, they were they were protesting, but they didn't burn down the stores. Yeah, the very stores not. they wanted permission to patronize. So yeah. there's there is there are human values attached mm-hmm. to nonviolent yeah. action. And burning down stores, destroying property—that's not—that's not—that's not, that's not, um, that's that's not, not nonviolent. It's not making a point. And today, whatever protest is going on, and uh, whatever reform needs to be done, and there's always in our democracy, there's always a, a moment to reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, the, we have never reached a peak of perfection, and those who who decry the fact that that America, um, you know, isn't perfect, they have an obligation to go out and help make it perfect. Mm-hmm. But burning down your neighborhood doesn't make anything perfect. Here in parts of L.A. where we've had riots after riots, the, uh, the, the Watts right. and then the 1992, there's still scars in those neighborhoods. It's They're still yeah, there. Because, uh, I mean, the pharmacies, they, I mean, I said, my friend lives right there. And she she said to me, I couldn't go get my medicine. And she has to take, she's got a heart right. problem. 
So she said, I had to go and call the guy that she works for, my hairdresser, to pick her up to take her to another pharmacy an hour and a half away in order to get yeah. her medicine because they did it. So my next question is, I love Jack, by the way, and I like Adrian. Excellent. And I like Herm. So he's driving his, his truck and everything, and he meets Herm on the way because he wants to sell his combine. So how does Herm come and help him out of nowhere? And then I felt bad for what happened to poor Herm. I, I was like, oh, you well, can't win. I did introduce Herm a little earlier as uh, the friend of yeah. Sugar. And um, I did I did want to set up a situation where Jack had – had a definable arc. In other words, he's growing up and becoming mm-hmm. aware of, you know how we grow up in our bubbles and we don't realize the trouble that our neighbors have down the street? Yeah. I mean, this is, typical, this is typical American youth, and maybe it's not as unusual, you know, all over the world. We tend to live in our little bubbles with our families and our, our friends that are like us. And Jack has pretty much done that. So I wanted his art to be one of personal growth. And mm-hmm. that's where he, he matures and becomes a young man and becomes aware around him of the issues of life. And he has to make choices. The first choice he has to make is, is um, his mother is deeply in debt. The house has gone up for tax sale. And they have yeah. one piece of valuable equipment left, farm equipment. Jack is driving it into town to sell it by prearranged meeting, and he stopped on the road by one of um, Sugar's old friends who knows the real story of what happened to Sugar. So Sugar Duncan, his father. And from there, Jack goes on a quest. Once he can, Once he's given that information... Mm. Jack goes on a quest to find out and all of these mysteries mesh together the mystery of Sugar's death the Adrian's quest to understand um, nonviolence and, and how it works and its power so both of these young men their lives are meshed together and they have moral dilemma after moral dilemma and um they each deal with it in separate ways, and that's that's how, what that's that's how life is, isn't it, Fran? Mm-hmm. We all make yeah, our moral decisions, and I, I grew up in an apartment that was as big as my thumb, in a building oh my that gosh. was very. Yeah, I did. I grew up on Southern Boulevard in Tremont, and I lived with my grandparents and my parents and my aunt and my uncle. We were all together, a whole a whole bunch of us, and. My room and my sister's room was as big as my elbow. It was so small. We didn't have, I mean, it wasn't that they couldn't afford, they, there was no place to put it. And my, my mother and father lived with my grandparents, and my grandmother was the boss, thank God. <laughs> and, we, and she owned the television, too. So we didn't get to watch too much of anything because she watched whatever she watched. So it, it was a small apartment. And as far as neighbors was my aunt, my aunt Martha that lived upstairs, that if you needed a tooth pulled, she took care of it. Just pulled it out, and her, my my grandmother's friend, whose husband was very great with electrics, so he helped me with my science project. And the super that was scary as anything, she was scary. So it wasn't you know wasn't too many. It was like small, but you know what? You didn't care because yeah. people came over, friends came over, and you just you didn't think about it. 
So let's get to this guy, the sheriff. The, the police in this town are corrupt. And why do they keep singling out Adrian and Jack? I mean, I got angry. I wanted to punch the sheriff in the head a couple of times, really. It's, it's almost as if he's, he's paid to, to just be mean. Why, why, did they, you know, why did they do that? And they specifically singled well, out, especially his father. Uh, uh, Jack's father and Adrian's father, yes. Adrian's father. Adrian's father, so Adrian, yeah, Adrian's father Adrian's yeah. Adrian's father is a, is a uh, strike leader. He's a strike captain. Yeah. He's a, um, he's a, he works with Cesar Chavez. And he's been working on the same ranch for many years, putting his son through school, um, pushing, you know, and this is how it's, it's happened generation after generation. You know, the second generation moves mm-hmm. off um, and goes to college and, and betters themselves, and that's his hope for Adrian. And uh, Adrian, Adrian's father uh, is involved with Cesar Chavez and and he comes home one day, and they're having what's called a house meeting, and this is where they would they would organize the workers and get them to to uh, join the union uh, to understand their rights. And it's all about understanding your rights, what right you have as an employee, and um, you know you have right to fair treatment. So nothing radical here, nothing Marxist. This is just traditional. Um, uh, and by the way, the growers used the communist label to smear Cesar Chavez, but he was a devout Catholic mm. and uh, um, definitely did not um, did not believe in Marxist philosophy. He was a devout Catholic and a and a devoted American. He loved America and believed that America um, just needed to be improved. And every generation has a responsibility uh, to widen the franchise, the franchise to vote, the franchise to better treatment. And that's what he's doing for his people. So um, what was the question, Fran? <laughs> <laughs> How um, I'm looking at why did they threaten? I mean, every time Mr. Sanchez, what why did they keep? Oh, Jack saw something, and they wanted Jack to claim that Mr. Sanchez committed a crime, but he wouldn't do that. So how would that affect his um, scholarship and stuff like that? Well, if um, the growers had a lot of power, and um, you know, in in those days. Well, in any days, if if uh, a scholarship ch- kid is involved in some type of criminal activity, and and strikers were arrested, and they you know it is they were they're arrested, they were uh, put in jail, so there was the possibility that he could be, you know, he could lose his scholarship, and um, and the growers had power, so. Um, Many of the growers were on the local school board at the time and um, uh, were threatening Caesar Chef with not allowing his daughter to graduate from Delano High School because, you know, they wanted him to, to relax their pre- his pressure on them. Mm. So they were using every bit of their power and 
they had the sheriff in his pocket, in their pockets, absolutely. And to emphasize this, mm. Bobby Kennedy came to Delano twice in 68, which I've depicted in this book, and in 65. And in 65, he was on a committee on immigration, and um, I can't even remember the name of the committee, but he was on an investigative Senate committee mm. that came to Delano to investigate the working conditions of the of the um, field workers because you know there had been it's a, it became a national issue, and he was the head of a panel of senators who interviewed field workers who interviewed. Uh, growers, and they interviewed the sheriff. Mm. So imagine this meeting here. You've got Bobby Kennedy on one side of the table, who is the same guy that, you know, that um, um, he's a very, very intense individual, was a very intense individual, very astute, very intelligent. And you have this sheriff of Kern County, and this is an actual conversation they had in 65. And Bobby Kennedy is asking him, so tell me, what do you do? Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the, the violence that goes on here? He goes, well, what we do is, um, you know, when, when uh, the violence starts and uh, the growers send their people out in the fields and um, they start fighting and, uh, and the farm workers strike back and start getting, you know, and there's a battle going on. We swoop in and arrest the farm workers. Bobby Kennedy says, why do you do that? He goes, well, for their own safety. Yeah, but they didn't start the fight. The growers have hired thugs to go in and start fights. Why don't you arrest them? He goes, well, no, we, mm-hmm. we just arrest the field workers because we hire them, put them in jail, and then, you know, the violence stops. And he says... Bobby Kennedy said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break here, and during the break, I want you to go and read the Constitution of the United States, mm-hmm. you and the district attorney of Kernville, Kern County, and I want you to understand, get a good grip on what you're doing because, because you do not understand how this country works. You don't, you don't, you don't, arrest the victims, you arrest the perpetrators. So Bobby knew and this and the country knew that um that the farm workers were not being treated fairly. So this this is it's it's nothing new in, in Kern County. Read the Graves of Wrath. This is the exact same yeah, thing did, yeah. that was going exactly. on there. Read read um factories in the field. It's the exact mm-hmm. same thing that 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 author wrote about in the 20s. So this has been going on for 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. It's a tradition, the symbiotic relationship of, of growers. and But Cesar Chavez broke that. It's not there anymore. It's completely broken. And everyone's on an uh, equal footing now. The growers treat in... There's still issues there. One of the great highlights of uh, mm. my recent past is my wife and I were able, before the lockdown, were able to go to Keene, where uh, Paul Chavez, mm. Caesar's son, oh, uh, nice. runs this. And we had lunch with them and talked with them, and I presented the books to them. And, 
he was very thankful. He he enjoyed the story. So um, I'm very pleased. Well, you know, I'm I'm going to say this. I was going to say this at the end <laughs> of the show, but I'm not going to say what the ending is. But there's like more to this story for Jack. Seriously? Oh yeah. It's it's like you yeah. can write a sequel. That's just my take on it. It's almost like you couldn't write continue it because there's more to say. So we've got his girlfriend Ella, and she's hot and cold, and and Darcy. And why does his father not like Jack? How could you not like Jack? I mean, really. Well, tell us about Darcy and why her father doesn't like Adrian. I mean, this, well, this these poor guys can't uh, win. And he's such a sweetheart, Adrian. I love him. He could go out with my niece. Adrian's a lovable but, uh, guy, and he's yeah. he's in love with a grower's daughter. And you know that's not going to end well. Of course not. And uh, and um, uh, but. Jack's girlfriend Ella um plays a big role in you know in influencing him and um she has her own um oh you know I could call it spiritual awakening she she has her own awakening to how the world really works and and it informs her life calling and uh the whole goal here was to give each one of these characters a definable arc and so that they could make their own moral choices. And um, from what you're telling me, it sounds like it worked and, and you enjoyed it. So I yep, do appreciate I your, yeah, I think it's a good story and I would like to write the sequel and um, under lockdown here, it's kind of hard to go out and interview people, but I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, on a lockdown, it's really hard and very depressing because you can't really do anything. And like I said, my niece graduated high school uh, two weeks ago, and I watched it on my phone because she called me (laughs) and she said, this is a virtual one, and this is at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. She said, are you going to watch my graduation? And of course I did. And at the end, she's she's 18. She graduated like her aunt with a 4.0. So I said, you know, mm-hmm. Katie Rose, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, watch it. There was so many, it's so, it was so sad, because she didn't get a chance to walk down the aisle, and then they, they have, um, where they led turn the tassel. Well, I was, she was able, they were able to film it and show it to me. They were able to film that and show it to me in her house, and at the end, I felt so sad that she missed out on something. And I didn't think it would matter. She, she said it was the most important thing in the world that that I stayed up to watch her graduate. So, I mean, the, well, the littlest wonderful. thing. Yeah, I was like, you really matter. It really matters. I, I don't stay up that late, seriously. But I, I just wanted her to, you know, to know, that, to, you know that, that I was there for her. I mean, Jack plays baseball, right? So how did this whole yes, thing affect his... How did it affect his scholarship and stuff? It had to affect his schoolwork, and his mother wasn't exactly thrilled with what he was doing, was she? Not really. No, because she knows what Sugar, what her husband went through, and she knows the true story, and she's trying to shield Jack from the reality, and uh, she doesn't want him to get involved in the local politics. She just wants him. You know, isn't that what the dream would be for all of our children? We don't want them yeah. to get bogged down in, 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 you know, the issues that have bound our lives. We want them to fly. We want them to go and, and do great things in, in the world beyond um, whatever boundaries we have. 
And so she has that aspiration for Jack. And so it's, it's, you know, and she purposely had kept Herm away from Jack. So that's why Jack, that's why Herm was, uh, you know, waylaid Jack on the way in and um, showed him the information he needs to. Now, we don't want to give away too much, but, no. um, you know, the, the motivation here was I layered a myth over a historical event. The myth is Jack and the Beanstalk, and I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know if that gives it away. But in that, in that fairy tale, if you could say, maybe mm-hmm. not a myth, in that fairy tale, the young man has to grow up and take responsibility as a man. And this is what Jack is doing. Think about the issues he had to face on his own with just a memory of his father and not an actual father. And um, and I think he turned out pretty well. But we let readers decide that, don't we? Actually, that's funny that you should say Jack and the Beanstalk because one of the stories that I read, fairy tales are very interesting when you work with kids. And I did Jack and the Beanstalk, and I did Hansel and Gretel and a whole bunch of others. And then I said to one of the children, I said, look what Jack did at the end of the story to the giant, what the giant did to them. Do you think what they did was right? Do you think that he took all that gold? Do you think that was right? And I tried to explain to them, just just because he was mean doesn't mean that he had the right to take it. So it was it was interesting, you know. And these were tough third, tough fifth graders, and they they actually got it. They thought it was really cool that that I did that. They also didn't think it was right that Hansel and Gretel shoved the the uh, queen the witch in the oven, even though she deserved it. They said they should have called the police. <laughs> <laughs> I said yeah. it's a matter of they, she they she was going to eat them, and they said no, it's wrong. I said well at least I taught you morals in something. So before I forget. Uh, Monday, I am so excited. I have an exclusive one-on-one interview with Brian Freeman, who now is in charge of the Robert Ludlum series, Jason Bourne. And I've got the first interview, the Bourne Evolution. On the 12th, I've got another one with John Land, Strong from the Heart, Caitlin Strong is back. On the 17th, Jeff Bond. On the 19th, Danny Perry, and on the 24th, Jeff Bond again. And I don't know about the 26th, so I'm not going to announce it because I, I don't know if the author is going to do it or not. And I'm hoping he is because he's kind of a New York Times bestseller, but we'll see what happens. And I'm excited because the uh, former writer of uh, Criminal Minds and Laura Norda, D.P. Lyle, just booked two shows on, with me in November. So I'm excited. A lot of people coming up. So... Jack learns a lot of lessons, but he comes up against the players who were, were mean to him, whatever. How does he deal with it? And tell us about this another character. We can't leave him out. Um, Kolasinovich, why does he seem to own the town, the courts, and the growers? I did not like this guy at all. I, I wanted to punch him and put him someplace. Well, you know, you've got to have a um, you, you've got to have an antagonist. Yeah, of course. And um, and I have you know nice growers. I have um, uh, wily growers, and I have a mean one. And um, Kosinovich is is typical of 
of the individual that is just grasping. He wants land. He wants um, he wants everything that he can get his hands on. Uh, not an unusual character in in uh, our culture. I mean, if you find the same people on Wall Street, you find the same people mm. on Main Street, and you find the same people, you know, uh, in our rural communities. So, um, I'm just, I, I just, he just came alive. He's not really based on any one individual. Mm. It's more of a composite. And, um, uh, you know, I'll just let your readers understand you know, there has to be someone you don't like. And, uh, yeah, I don't like I, and I can't, Yeah, and I, you know, some books have people that you like all the characters, but that's not this story. Because uh, in this story, people were faced in true life mm-hmm. with profound moral decisions about what type of people they're going to be. But to and, be honest, if I uh, read a book that I like all the characters, it's boring. And if there's well, no antagonist and there's no no opposition, I go like, oh God, I'm going to fall asleep right right away. And exactly. I mean, where do we go from there? And well, I um, have, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, where do you go from there? So, um, you know, the antagonist kind of grow in your mind, and the stature of a protagonist always has to be met by the stature of your. I'm sorry, the stature mm-hmm. of the antagonist will help define the stature of your uh, protagonist. And, mm. I mean, you know, all books are, uh, good novels are based that way. And anyway, I tried to give some clarity to what the growers were thinking. I, that was mm-hmm. the meaning of the card games, the opportunity for Jack to sit yeah. down in a yeah. neutral environment and talk with them. So you could hear them talk, you know. I mean, these would be the kind of conversations, if you were um, uh, Kosinovich's child, this is the kind of conversation you would hear mm-hmm. around the dinner table with his friends. But I didn't know how to, you know, how do I get Jack around the dinner table with all these guys? So uh, that was the, that was the idea behind those games. And... To me, the most interesting thing are the, the metaphors that um, you can create as a writer. And I've used games as a metaphor. Um, well, if- so, you, you know, there's games within games. Well, look, we have a few more questions here. Okay, the, the point of contention, of course, is the sale of the land and the water rights. And when Jack finds out about things, how does he try to get it back and follow his father's path? So in order to sort of honor his father. Well, um, how does he how does he try to get the water rights back? Well, he uses an unorthodox method. Am I correct? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, so Sugar was a gambler And uh, Jack Was warned away from gambling But he decided To um, Herm talks him into taking up the card game Because he knows he's got the gift The talent And um, 
So I've used this unorthodox manner uh, to try to create some excitement and to create a metaphor because every game has its rules. Am I, am I correct? I don't care if you, yep. you play chess or you play checkers. If you don't play by the rule, you don't want to play with the person who doesn't want to play by the rules. And so mm. I'm setting up these metaphors of games that have to be played by the rules if they are to be fair. And then the bigger game, which is, you know, the game of life that, that Jack and Adrian are engaged in. So um, I did use card playing as a way, uh, a possible way for Jack to get back the water rights. And uh, I, I hope your readers enjoy that. I tried to make it thrilling and interesting. You did. My father would have loved it because he was a card player. Poker, yeah. Pinochle, and he taught me. Yeah, so he he definitely would have he would have done the same thing, without a doubt, and probably won. He actually knows, knew how to count. He knew how to count cards too. He was really good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so he taught he um, taught me how to do it. But I would I I don't wouldn't do that. So Jack learned some hard lessons about human rights, human dignity, loyalty, and hope plus honesty. Yes, acceptance. So what do you suppose yes. when people finish reading this? First of all, I think young people should read this. And it's too Excellent bad that, that colleges are going to be, you know, online or at home or in school. And I hesitate. I'm glad my, my nephew is going to be at home. Um, most of the colleges, from what I gather, are only having the freshmen there. And this, everybody else has to work from home. Whoa. And that gets me nervous with my niece who's going. But um, what would you hope if a young person like Jack's age or even younger gets from reading this book? Because this is a powerful story. What do you think people should come away with after they read uh, The Road to Delano? I, w- I would hope that they could um, take these the lessons that Jack learned and Adrian yeah. learned and um, apply them to their lives in some way. And this is the power of literature. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, literature doesn't prescribe and say you have to do this as, as um, mm-hmm. you know, a self-help book might. And um, literature illustrates. So I've illustrated two young men making profound moral decisions mm-hmm. that affects their futures. And, you know, we like to think particularly middle-class Americans, who like to think, you know, I'll get through high school, I'll get through college, and I'll get my ticket to a a good Mm. life. But, you know, there are other alternatives. And life life doesn't um, always lay out evenly and and Mm -hmm. straight to us. Sometimes our our mission in life comes to us, uh, you know, on a crooked path. That's true. And um, through a learning and, I mean, we can all look back and say, boy, if that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't be here today. And I think Jack and Adrian can both say that. They made decisions that were important to their life based on mm-hmm. the values that were important to them. And I'm not talking about, you know, whether they're going to smoke weed or have sex with their mm-hmm. girlfriend. I'm talking about deep moral yeah, values right. and um that are, are important to them. So I'm hoping that students reading this would see the importance of really searching their heart and looking for what's really important in their lives. 
and how the, how those decisions affect others. I think that's important. As a matter of fact, there's too bad that not enough professors teach when they teach humanities and stuff like that. Realize it because I I didn't go up getting everything I wanted. Nothing. I had to work for everything. Works yeah. to some ten. And my dad yeah. owned a cleaning store, and, it, and you you worked. If things come too easily, that's not appreciated. It's you appreciate it when you have to work hard. So where can we learn more about you and your work, and what's next, and when's the sequel going to come out? I still think you could write another well, one. I'm, I'm working on it. And working oh, good. On See, I know I would write. You can, <laughs> you can find my book on Amazon, of course, on Barnes & Noble, on IndieBound. And then you can find me at my website, johndsimone.com, D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E, and on Facebook, John D. Simone Author. So um, I'd be glad to hear. I'd love to hear from readers. And uh, I want to thank you, Fran, for such a detailed interview and this opportunity to reach your audience. You're welcome. Do you do panel shows by any chance? I'm doing, well, I'm doing one panel show. I do them with a lot of people. I tend to do things that no one thinks to do. I'm doing one. I have four people. I'm doing one on timelines and uh, flashbacks on November 12th. And on December 8th, I'm doing do one on ancestors. Um, Lee, Lee Matthew Goldberg wrote a book. Uh, it's called The Ancestor, where this guy is, it's in 1898. He froze, and he's alive in 2020 trying to find gold and trying to find his family. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. So I'm doing a couple wonderful. like that. So um, we, with, with talking about issues and migrant workers and stuff like that, I might decide to do something in December or January. So I'll have to let you know. And it's a lot of, it's a well, lot of please, fun. Please, please keep me in mind because I would love to um, participate in any uh, of those panels. I will because that we have a lot, a lot of fun and the authors are they're a riot. I mean, I, I make up the questions just so that I keep them intact because otherwise everybody interrupts everybody, but they don't do that because I just tell them this is what you're going to, these are the questions and then the yeah. order. But I want to thank you so much. This is interesting. And I, this book, um, I, in order to get an appointment with one of my medical providers, I have to bring him a book. <laughs> it's the truth. So, um Dr. M, Dr. Marmelstein's getting this when I go back next week just to check something, which is no big deal. He he asked me what I'm reading, so he just said, please bring everything. So he's going to get this one. Excellent. And he reads every, Thank yeah, you very much, Fran. I, I, I need more fans like you, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great day. The sun is out, and bye. Goodbye.